Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January 6, 2015. This is episode 1493 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, I don't always record episodes. In fact, I very rarely record episodes. I figured, hey, I've got this great studio set up now, green screen and all that, so... Why not try doing an episode and also capturing the video and putting it on YouTube? I don't know how often I'll do this, but maybe a couple times a month. But if you want to hear more of the Survival Podcast, this is primarily an audio show. Get on over to the survivalpodcast.com, and there are over, you know, 1,493 episodes now online available for you on all aspects of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and Liberty, and you can join over a 100,000 fellow listeners in our various communities at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Anyway, with that, today's show is uh, directly a response to many uh, requests from our listeners, both uh, member support brigade members and just general listeners as well, uh, in a request that we go into uh, raising ducks uh, as a homestead project or even as a business. And this is primarily because I have been uh, raising ducks in uh, in cooperation with my wife Dorothy now for about eight months, and we've just begun selling duck eggs, and we uh, immediately had more success than we expected with uh, customers, and we're now in a position where we're looking to expand our flock, and we're doing some stopgap things in the middle. And I've been putting out some members-only content on upstate on the fa- updates on the farmstead, and that's uh, that's caused a lot of questions and a lot of requests just to go full on into ducks. I'm going to do that today. Before I do, let us go ahead, take care of our sponsors and our housekeeping for this episode of the Survival Podcast. Sponsor of the day number one today for our show is uh, Fortress Defense, sorry guys, Fortress Defense Consultants. That's the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors that uh, will help you learn to complete what I call that triangle of gun operator efficiency. Uh, Frank Sharp and his cadre of instructors are perpetual students. They take classes from other instructors every year to continue their learning so that they can be better instructors. Remember, when it comes to self-defense, if you're carrying, you should be trained. And I have a lot of people ask me at times, what's the next gun I should buy? And I often uh, respond with, maybe you should invest in yourself. Uh, one gun is enough. I'm saying you should only have one gun. I'm just saying it is sufficient if you know how to operate it. Remember, in that triangle of efficiency... You have the operator, you have the gun, and you have the quality ammunition. Uh, you can purchase and know the quality of ammunition in the gun. When it comes to you, the operator, it requires investment, it requires time, it requires training. Frank Sharp and his folks will help you do uh, just that, to complete that triangle of gun operator efficiency. Next up today, ReadyMade Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does, all the resources you need, ReadyMade, ready to go. Point, click, buy on their website. And uh, you can find everything for your prepping needs, from 12-volt products for your solar and wind, from the practical to the 
tactical, from guns to gardens, everything in between, ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. Check them out today. Uh, remember, ready-made resources does have a special deal for members of our support brigade. On that, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you'll get uh, discounts to uh, about 60 different vendors at this point, sponsors and simply supporting vendors as well, and just about everything that you would need for your prepping and for your homesteading activities, permaculture activities, you name it, and you help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. And do remember this, folks. Uh, if you don't want to join for a full year, you can join for a month. Uh, it does automatically renew with PayPal, but uh, you can cancel anytime you want in your PayPal account. So if you want to give it a shot at five bucks a month, uh, every little bit helps us in the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. I tried to build the member support brigade in such a way uh, that it pays for itself, and by doing so, it would in, in, you know create loyalty in uh, in the customer base. It seems to have done that. And military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you do qualify for a discount. Just email me uh, at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And uh, put service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get you that discount code. Please do this before, not after you join. Doing it after you join is a real pain in the butt uh, to say just a little bit about that. Next up today, it is Tuesday. Tuesday on the Survival Podcast, we have Plant of the Week. Uh, that is from our supporting vendor for the MSB, Bob Wells Nursery in Lindale, Texas. And uh, this week, Bob has an interesting plant for us that we can put into our edible landscapes or into our homesteads or into our farms. And that is the Fuyu persimmon, F-U-Y-U, Fuyu, Fuyu, no, really, the Fuyu persimmon is awesome. It's an adaptable tree, uh, but it's not hugely adaptable. Zone 7 to zone 10 is what the paperwork says. I do know people growing Fuyu successfully in zone 6, especially once it is heavily established. That first year, you want to protect that tree really deeply mulched, and it can go into zone 6, from my personal experience anyway. Uh, it's a medium-sized persimmon, flat shape. It's still crunchy when it's ripe. So if you like persimmons but aren't all hip on how mushy they are and you generally have to do something with them, uh, you know, other than just eat them because you don't like the texture, Fuyu is for you. Um, it is non-astringent. That's another cool thing, and that's why it's crunchy uh, when it's ripe. So most persimmons, you get them off the tree, and if you eat it, your face just goes... <laughs> Remember Alum with uh, you, know, you know the cartoons when we were kids, the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show, that type of thing, and the one character would pour that in the other character's mouth, and would, that's astringency, right? So that's how you feel. You're like, oh, right, with a persimmon. So you set it on a, a warm place for a while, and it's bleeding is what it's called. And it goes to full ripeness, and the astringency goes away. Fuyu does not require that. Uh, it ripens in fall. It's self-fertile, so you don't need a cross-pollinator, so you could have just Fuyus. Though my experience has also been, if you have some cross-pollination going on, you get better yields overall. Uh, and it's practically pest-free. Pretty much nothing bothers it. So check it out. You can learn more about Fuyu persimmons and all types of cool edible plants at Bob Wells Nursery at bobwellsnursery.com. Uh, remember, they also do a discount for you guys in the member support brigade. Now, on to the history segment. The year is 1493. Those of you on YouTube have missed 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but I got good news for you. If you go to tspwiki.com, all the history segments and tons of information on self-reliance, self-sufficiency, independence, and liberty, and our entire community are available at our wiki. Again, that's tspwiki.com. All of you guys out there in the audience, you can become contributors to the wiki. In fact, we even have great training. So if you're like, I don't know how to do stuff on a wiki, 
It's all there. Just go to tspwiki.com on the main page, and you can find everything you need to know to become part of this additional community that's part of the TSP family of communities, I guess is the way I look at it. So today what we have is the first Spanish fort is an epic fail. This is a continuation on to what we talked about yesterday with the real story of Columbus. We have the Croatian nobility is wiped out, sort of, or the king of France wants a crusade. Since I kind of went into a little bit of the after story of Columbus yesterday, and since I know there'll be more from the awesome Alex Shrugged that does these segments for us, I am going to go with the king of France wants a crusade today. And this is the, what Alex has for us. Remember that little war in Naples that the Pope Innocent VIII supported, but a major cardinal opposed? The war went badly, and that cardinal is now Pope Alexander VI, who has an illegitimate 13-year-old daughter he will marry off this year. Just saying. Naples was the first a tiny rock is coming. Uh, Naples was the first tiny rock in the coming avalanche. The avalanche will be the King of France, King Charles the Affable. These guys all have these names that you just know aren't... The reason they have a name is you know it's not true. Like, when you see your kid in the in the, in the the kitchen, and he's got cookie crumbs on his face, and he goes, I didn't eat a cookie. You know he ate a cookie. He's affable. The Pope's in his... Get, get on with it. Anyway, uh, it's sad that there is no great crusades anymore. He wants a crusade real bad. And he's thinking about having one in Italy. Italy? Yep. To bring order to the chaos there. And there is chaos in Italy at the time. The king is just in the planning stages now, but when it gets going, it's going to be an eye-opener for the Italians. Why, you ask? Well, here's what Alex Shrugged has to say. The Italian idea of war is a set piece that's almost choreographed, at least on one's home turf. It's all done by mercenaries who might be allies one month and enemies the next, depending on who is paying them. Thus it pays for the mercenary companies not to hurt each other too badly, The problem is the king of France is not going to care about whose feelings he's going to hurt. He's going to fight to win, and it's going to be messy. I chose that one today because there's a lesson in history for that, and it's at the business level, the national level, the warfare level, all levels. It really is about how to win. What happens is societies, corporate apparatus, businesses, etc., all come to a set of rules that they play by. And they follow the rules. Sometimes these rules are reasonable. Sometimes they're dumb. Sometimes these rules are more a, a, an order of convention. Uh, but in history and in the future, the same will play out over and over again. Those who break the rules are the ones that win. That doesn't mean those who do evil are the ones that win. In the Revolutionary War, the colonists, the revolutionaries, the patriots broke the rules of warfare. They shot officers off their horses with sharpshooters. And they won. They also ran away. They didn't engage. In fact, the main reason we won the Revolutionary War is the guerrilla tactics were employed in the South and running away. Strike and run. Strike and run. Strike and run. Make your enemy pursue you. This broke the rules of war. Apple broke the rules of business and became a dominant superpower. And little companies break the rules. Everybody does business a certain way. Little entrepreneurs come up and say, we'll do it differently. And they win and they form successful businesses. Sometimes they make their founders quite wealthy, even if you never know their names. They're not that big. So that's my lesson for you. When everybody's doing something a certain way, there may be a reason for it, You shouldn't break the rules or change course just to do so. But always be open to it, because historically, those who smartly break the rules win. My take, 
by Jack Spierko. And with that, we can get into the main topic of today's show, which, of course, is the rearing and raising of ducks. Now, again, I've had a ton of requests for this show. And when my audience asks me to do something, I do it. Uh, sooner or later, anyway. Uh, I, I get to it, and I get it going. And there's been a reason that I've been, actually multiple reasons, I've been a little hesitant to do this particular show on ducks. Number one, I've done a lot on geese and chickens in the past. And the reason I've done that is I grew up with grandparents who raised geese and chickens. Geese to protect the chickens and chickens for eggs and meat. And so my experience with hands-on application of raising chickens and geese goes back to when I was a little bit guy. My experience with ducks is the last eight, nine months that we've been raising our own ducks with successes and failures. And as a kid running around in Florida where we had apartment complexes everywhere with ponds in them, and there were semi-wild, semi-domestic Muscovy ducks on those ponds that everybody fed bread to. And until now, other than shooting ducks in, in, uh, in the swamp as a hunter, my experience with ducks is limited to those things. And because of that, I have been reluctant to get on and do a definitive show about ducks, especially at this point, uh, seven years into the show, where I know I say things, and then people take that as absolute and go do it. Uh, I'm a little leery of giving you advice when I'm not 100% sure uh, if that advice is absolutely accurate at this point. Anyway, um, the other reason, though, is I was afraid that it wouldn't make that much of a show. Because the reality is, it's easy. That That's my biggest lesson so far. There's some things you can do wrong, and there's some things that you can do to make your life easier, but in the end, if you have the space for ducks, if you have the facilities for ducks to uh, be protected from predators, and you have places for ducks to go forage and be ducks, you don't have to do very much other than feed them and make sure they have fresh, clean water. And if you have a great big pond, that's half the battle right there. I don't, so... I know how to deal with them now from practical experience and what they really need versus what the Internet says they need um, a little bit better. But it's not hard. And then it comes to the next thing that's, complica that's not complicated, but held me back from doing this episode. And that is that I knew when I actually broke down everything that we're doing, it would come into this big, giant list of things that you do. And all this knowledge that we've acquired over the last eight months. And that made me afraid that somebody would listen to like an hour-long segment on ducks and go, wow, this is complicated, and be afraid or intimidated by it. So I want to say right up front, I've put all this information in here based on my experiences, my observations, and your questions and concerns expressed to me. But in the end, as long as you meet certain criteria that I'll give you today for raising ducks, just get them, just do it. And the ducks know what to do. If they're fed, watered, and covered well, they'll be fine. So let's start out with uh, a reality. I have fallen out of love with chickens. I'll probably always still have some. I'll probably always do like an annual meat run of chickens uh, because they're such a good quality meat, especially if you do appropriate breeds specifically for a meat run. Uh, having some chickens that you can put into service to do things like break up, Uh, animal patties and things like that is definitely advantageous, but in the end, the chicken is a pain in the ass. I have chickens that are, you know, little bitty Rhode Island red chickens, and I have great big fat buff Orpingtons. 
And I clip their wings to keep them into the area that I want them in. I have five-foot horse fencing. And some of the birds will clip wings. Even the big fat ones get over. They get over, they go into gardens, they dig holes, they mess stuff up. People say, why don't you tractor them? Because with the level of productivity that we're looking for, it's not practical. We have three acres, and we want things to be carefree and easy, and I don't want to be out moving tractors every day. I'll do that type of thing for a meat run for an 8- to 12-week period, but when that meat run, meat run is done for the year, I want to process those birds, I want to sell them, give them away, and put them in the freezer and cook them, and I want to be done for the rest of the year. I don't want to be out moving tractors every day. If it was one small tractor with a six-bird egg-laying flock, it would be different. We have goals to produce enough eggs in surplus to provide revenue that pays for everybody else. That's our pretty much our goal, is to make sure that we can have what we want and it be paid for with other people's money through small farmstead business. And ducks seem to work a lot better for that. Here's what I love about ducks. First of all, when it gets too cold... You got to worry about your chickens getting frostbite on their combs and stuff like that, and they're miserable. Ducks like it when it's cold. Uh, when it rains, all your chickens look miserable. They hide. They run under stuff. The ducks run around and plant it. They don't care. Cold and rain, they don't care. The, not, not last night, but the night before, it was 21 degrees outside. And out of curiosity, I went out to my duck holding area that also has a shed that they can go in to keep warm and whatever they want to do. And it was already down to 24 degrees at about midnight. I got up in the middle of the night, and I decided to throw my slippers on, throw a jacket on, go out and see what the ducks were up to. They're out milling around in the cold. They don't care. Uh, chickens are just huddled up and miserable and, and, and sleeping at that time. Ducks don't care. Easy defense. Right now I have my ducks in an area that's basically wired to, the, to a fence behind their house. And so that makes the whole area bigger. And it's made up of four 16-foot hog panels. Two come straight out, and then two kind of form a bend of you. And I have videos of me letting them out that I'll put in today's show notes so you can uh, you can see kind of that area. Um, that fencing is low enough that I can step over it. We've not yet had a duck get out of it. So they're very easy to fence. So if you do want to paddock shift them or control them, very, very easy. They're light on the land. They're very light on the land. They... Uh, They don't scratch. They do when it's wet and muddy. They make mud puddles, but it's not that big a deal if they have enough space to work on. That becomes a problem when they're confined all the time, right? And they make like a wallow like pigs, basically. But when they have room to roam, they go from place to place to place, and they only kind of obsess of an area when it's really wet and really muddy. And the thing is, when they go away, if you then mulch that area or seed and mulch that area or throw a little bit of like compost or topsoil down and then mulch it and seed it, boy, it, it just bangs up. So they, these spots that they muck up actually become uh, very fertile spots over time. And as you build that area, it stops being a depression. They pick a new place and you continually improve your pasture for the benefit of the ducks and the rest of what you're doing. So uh, I, I just see them as very light on the land compared to a chicken. You can also herd them, um, which you can't do with chickens. Uh, I'm, I'm making an update right now on the blog, herding. Herding is possible. And what I mean by that is it's, you can do it. Uh, once you get ducks moving in a direction, everybody kind of goes that way. Right, as long as you get one or two kind of on path, they go. So if I did want to paddock shift my ducks, I could set up non-electric fence barrier of any kind. It only needs to be two and a half to three foot tall. I could set up the area that I want them in. I can have an opening in that. I can go get them in the morning. 
I can lead them and herd them over there, toss a little bit of treat, bread, whatever inside there. They'll go in there. All I really have to do is set up their kiddie pools, fill it up with water. And if you have a pond, they're going to gravitate to the pond. You probably won't want to be doing all this work anyway. Put that kiddie pool in there, start filling up with water with a hose, man. And they're all about that. They're right there. Close them in. Leave them there for part of the day, half the day, the whole day. Whatever it is you want to do, you can herd them. Try doing that with chickens. You get a group of chickens, a flock of chickens, you try to move them, and chickens go everywhere. Ducks go in a line. Um, they also hunt as a pack, which to me makes them more effective predators than chicken. Not only are they not messing everything up, but when they go through my food forest, they go through like a military formation. They fan out in a V, like a reverse V. Like so when they fly, they fly with that flying V, with the, the point of the V forward. When they go through the food forest, they show more like a, uh, like a, a U shape. Uh, with, with the U recessed in the center. And as they move forward, that drives grasshoppers and other vermin, and they, they seem to kind of rotate and take turns in different spots, almost like hunters driving deer. Uh, I've never seen that behavior in chickens. So the fact that I, I witnessed that behavior tells me they're more effective as predators. Their manure is considered cool. Chicken manure is great fertilizer, but it has to be composted. It's not that big a deal when you're free-ranging birds because it's spread all over the place and they scratch it and break it up and it bonds with carbon and what have you. But in the end, it's still a hot manure. Uh, duck manure, manure is not a totally cool manure. It's not like a rabbit manure. But it's much cooler than chicken manure, much less likely to burn plants. And uh, they kind of concentrate it in water. So if you have you know dump and drain type systems and you move those around, you can literally move the fertility just by moving their water sources. Because as soon as they get in a tank, they hit the eject button. So that can be a pain in the butt because you have to constantly resupply their water every day. But if you're strategic about it and you move their water systems, you don't need to fence them to paddock them. They're going to gravitate toward most of the day toward their water systems. So they are looking at me in the window right now because uh, they're on one of their paths. And Every day I watch them go places and kind of hang out in an area And then they come back to their base of operations for a little bit, sometimes because a hen's laying late in the day and she drops an egg or something. But if one comes back, they all come back. And then you see them all file back out, much more friendly and organized than chickens. Uh, and they're also a creature of habit and routine, which can swing both ways on you. But from an advantage standpoint, that means that I know where they're going to be and when they're going to be there. I don't have to worry about, you know, kind of how things are going to go for them. And because of that... As long as I stick to their routine, they're calm and happy. So they're not upset. They're not distressed. They like to see you at the same time every day. They like to be fed the same time every day. So they fit nicely into a schedule. And they get very used to that schedule. So it's not you're out like the chickens and you're out chick, 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 calling them in because you've decided uh, to feed them in the middle of the day. It's almost like they expect that you'll be there. And they wait for you. And, uh, you know, they're just, they're just cool that way. The not-so-great side, what are the, neg the negatives? Because, you know, every time there's a positive, there's always some negative to out, not maybe outweigh it, but to counter it. So number one is they are messy. Now, I don't actually consider them that messy because I have enough space for the volume of ducks that we're running. But if you had a confined area, and those ducks stayed in that confined area every day, it is going to be stinky, nasty, and mucky. They poop, and then their web feet spread their poop out, and they make like a poop patty. And they just keep building that layer up. So you either have to keep remulching over top of it, or removing and replacing. So if they're spending a lot of time in one place, they're messy. They make mud. They make mud on everything. 
And as soon as there's wet mud, the bill goes in, it starts like that, and they're filter feeding is what they're doing. Anything hiding in that mud, they're actually pushing the mud and, and the water through their beaks, and their little teeth-like structures in their beaks are actually filtering things out, and they feel it with their tongue, oh, that's a slug, gulp. And I, I believe they're feeding down to some level of almost microscopic level based on what I've seen them do. So it's a beneficial behavior, but it does make little holes in mud wallers and things like that, and it is messy, especially if they're too confined. My ducks spend most of their time on about two acres of our property. There's a few spots they've mudded up pretty good, but like I said, you could remediate it, but it is a mess. When it rains a lot overnight and you go out to their house, the whole one side of their house is just covered in mud because they, they wallow right in front of it, and they, they basically go underneath the duck house. Uh, they seem to like it under there better than in the duck house. So they can make things kind of muddy. Um, they are also single-minded and stubborn. Uh, it's great that they all go someplace together, but let's say they ha something happens, like they discover that you've seeded an area, and they decide they want to eat that seed. Um, with my chickens, I can send my dog Charlie to disrupt their behavior, and after they're chased away from there a couple times, they're like, that, that's not worth it, we'll go somewhere else. And if you throw some feed somewhere else, they're chickens. They just, duh, they forget. And they go and they eat that seed. And they forget that they were over there and there was something great over there. And the dog was over there and that was scarier. That's more in the memory. The ducks don't forget. They know. They know that's there. And you can try to bribe them with other yummies and goodies. But once one of them has decided that I want to go eat that, Or I want to go make a mess out of that. Or I want to go be there. Or I want to go climb in that stock tank that he doesn't want me in right now. It's going to keep, you keep pushing them away and they keep doubling back. And when one goes, that's where the hurting behavior bites back on the other side. They all go. So they can be stubborn. So you just have to understand that and develop methods of control and confinement when necessary to get certain things done or to keep them away from areas when you need them kept away. But again, low fencing makes that pretty easy to do. Um... They're also noisy. Uh, chickens are talked about as being noisy, but ducks... And occasionally I'll hear a rooster sound off in the chicken coop at night, but at night they're quiet. Sometimes I go out at night, I have a beer and look at the stars or whatever, and I hear them just... At 9, 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. Carrying on. Here, it's no problem. They are only about 50 yards from the house, and they're probably, yeah, 50 yards from the main living area of the house, a little closer to my office here. And uh, we don't really hear them in the house uh, when, they're, when they're in their area. If they're on the porch, which they occasionally get on, we hear them. Um, especially at night, you have the TV, even if the TV's on low or whatever, you, you don't hear them. But in suburbia, if you're trying to do the backyard suburban thing, I could see them being quite noisy. So you can go with muscovies because they're quiet, but they have their other challenges we'll talk about. And then they're creatures of habit and routine. Didn't you say that was an advantage? I did say that was an advantage. It can be an advantage. It can also be a pain in the butt. Um, when it's time to let them out in the morning and you decide to sleep a little bit late today, then you do hear them because all of them, and we have close to 30 of them, are out there pacing back and forth, doing their head thing, and squawking their butts off. They're like, where are you? And where the chickens just sit in the coop, like, whatever. I don't care. He'll let us out when he lets us out. There's food and water in here. I don't care. Those ducks are like, dude, where are you? You're supposed to be here now. 
And so there are certain things that if they become accustomed to that routine and that's not met, they start to become upset by it. Almost like autism. If you've ever dealt with a person with, with like mild autism where they can function fine, but if you break their routine, it's very frustrating. That's how ducks are. I was at Ben Falk's place uh, in uh, in Vermont one time, and he had a sheep go down with fly strike, where they get like this this maggot infestation in their wool. And so we had to shear this sheep, and we had to keep her away from the rest of the herd for a couple days. And we put her in this barn area and closed her in there and looked after and kept rubbing different things, medicinal things, uh, that his herbalist uh, girlfriend at the time, now wife, was telling us to use. And it was working. It was getting the, 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 the fly maggots out of this poor sheep. But she had to be sequestered in there. So we closed up the barn so she couldn't get out. And that's where the ducks usually overnighted. And it was like a duck riot. And he only had like a dozen ducks. They were pissed. They were angry, and they were screaming all night long because they couldn't get in their barn. Now, there was another space about the exact same size, just as good. It was like an open barn type thing. It had like a bay here and a bay here. Over here, but that's not where they, they would not go there. They refused. They wanted to go in there, and the next day we ended up moving the sheep so they could get in. So um, it, that, that can work against you, I guess, a little bit. It's not a big deal. As far as the duck breeds I'm currently working with, I'm going to go kind of fast because I found that unless you have a specific goal, it's not a big deal. It's whatever you like. So I'm working with Cayugas, which are these big black ducks, and they're beautiful in the sun with the way their color kind of comes out over that black, like like blues and greens and things like that. I'm working with some hybrid layers, the Golden 300 hybrid layers. I'll talk more about in a bit. Rowans, which look like big fat mallards. Um, runner ducks of various kinds. And the way I got started, I ordered, well, I went to Tractor Supply and got a dozen ducks. And eight of the dozen died. And I asked my wife, how many ducks do you want? And she said, being like a cute, you know, plucky female, 22. You know, almost like a dare, like you won't do it. So I ordered 22. And I figured we'd have similar losses. And they sent me 23. They always send you a bonus duck, it seems like, when you order quite a few. And uh, one died. So then we ended up with 26 ducks. And uh, I ordered a straight-run mix, just whatever. So that's when we got all these different guys. I didn't know what I wanted, so we'll just you know work through it. So the runners, we've got a buff runner. Uh, we've got a, a gray runner. I don't know what he is, but he's gray. We've got two black runners. And uh, most of them are drakes. So there's an issue there. Runners are small, compact, thin ducks. And... Um, so they don't make a very good meat bird because there's just not much carcass. And then the other thing is, in our country, we have taken the runner duck to be this cute, you know, penguin-looking thing, and it's become a really popular show breed. And a lot of the uh, high, uh, highly sought-after laying characteristics of runners in China and India have actually been not bred out but ignored. So as, as, as breeders have focused more on the show quality of the bird, they've not worried about the laying quality of the bird. So that has gone down because in India and China, they are considered a, a very, very efficient layer. Uh, and they like that it's a small bird because it eats less to produce an egg. So over here, the runners, I, I don't really advise you to have them other than they're fun as hell to watch run around. Khaki Campbells, which are one of the best backyard egg-laying breeds you can have, but they can be a little bit nervous. I might have Swedish. I might not. I don't know. I ordered straight runs, and it was before I knew about the hybrid layers, the Golden 300 hybrid layers. 
and the white 300 hybrid layers from Metzer Farms. And I have these birds that look like Swedish drakes. They don't, I don't have any Swedish females, which, again, makes me think that they're hybrid layers. When I finally saw the golden hybrid layer, it's the female who's golden. She looks like a slightly larger um, female rowan, which looks a lot like a female mallard, right? So with a little bit more golden color and doesn't have really the blue in the in the wing, what have you. Um, so I know I have some of those now that I know what to look for. But the males look like a lot like Swedishes. They're black with white chests. So I'm not sure which one I have. And I have Muscovies that I just picked up, which are a world of their own. And this is what I've determined about ducks. And I'm leaving the Muscovies out of this because they're new to the flock and they don't really follow the rest of the flock. I have like two flocks now, even though they sleep together. The rest of the ducks go off and do their thing and the Muscovies go off and do their thing. And it makes sense because both groups grew up together separately. Um, the All the things I've read about the behavioral characteristics of ducks. Khakis are nervous. Um, Swedish and, and Cayugas are calm, etc. I think that applies if you have a flock of all the same ducks. If you have a flock of many different ducks, a multicultural flock, I think you get some level of what you would call like a duck vulcanization, like vulcanizing rubber together, a melting pot, right? They tend to become the sum of their parts. They all seem to act the same. They all seem to do the same. They do have some unique individual personality traits you'll notice. Like you'll notice certain ducks, you know, have certain attitudes or something like that. But in the end, they all are pretty daggone calm. They all do their thing. They all spend time together. I'm watching one of them right now. The Gray Runner. He's, uh, he's leading the flock. They take turns leading the flock. Um, and I think as far as whether they're calm, and approachable, and can you interact with them? The more time you spend with them as ducklings, the more that will be the case. The less time you spend with them, the more independent they'll be, and the less they'll follow you around, and the, the more they don't want you to touch them. And my ducks pretty much don't want to be picked up. Uh, they don't want to be touched. They don't want to be chased. They get, you know, about 10 feet from you, and that's their personal space. And when we're feeding them treats and all, they kind of come into that range, and that's it. And... And that's where they're happy. So we let them do what they want to do. So I think a lot of the behavioral characteristics, unless you're getting four or five of the same duck in a small situation, it, it doesn't really matter. Get what you like or buy for the purpose that you want the duck for. Egg production, meat production, dual purpose, uh, and uh, self-propagating dual purpose is the ones I broke down. And I'll give you my thoughts on those next. So um, from a meat production standpoint, if you just want meat, You can't beat the pecking. You really can't. For the time it takes for the little duckling to become meat-sized with feed conversion and processed and made into a wonderful roasted duck, the pecking wins for that battle over and over. Now, there's a couple different options. There's straight old-fashioned peckings, uh, which are a Chinese breed, but the French have really done a lot with them. And that brings us to uh, the Grimland Hybrid is what it's called. And this is a faster-growing white peckin' duck that does really, really well. And it's not truly a hybrid. It's more of a line, a bred line, and it's based on the males in that line. So they call it a hybrid because you're taking pretty much a, a regular female peckin' and breeding it to one of these grim and hybrid males that have been bred for speed of growth and size. And they're available from Metzer Farms. And what I like about them is they compare very closely 
to the time on pasture of a Cornish cross chicken with none of the problems. If you want to get a bunch of these things and let them grow to be nine years old and float on your pond, it's fine. They'll be big, fat, white ducks, but they'll be fine. They don't break their legs. They don't get sick. Mortality on pasture is about 2%, which is comparable to any any bird that you're going to put out on pasture for meat propagation. Uh, and then there's also a jumbo pecking. They don't have the speed to size, but they get very big. Drakes get 13 pounds. That's that's goose size. That's mid-sized goose size right there. So the peckins, and take your pick of them if you want just meat. The other thing with meat with peckins, if you're growing your own meat, it doesn't matter. It's just not a big deal at all. But if you are growing ducks that you're going to produce as meat for market, it's a totally different situation. When you produce a product for market, Whether it actually affects the quality of the product or not, consumers have an expectation of appearance. If you take something like a Swedish duck, which grows pretty fast, almost comparable to the pecan, gets big, very, very robust animal, calm, easy to manage, great taste. When you pluck it, it has these little black spots and little mottled black areas of the skin. What does this do to the flavor of the bird? Nothing. What does this do to the quality of the product? Nothing. What does this do in the mind of the consumer? Ew, something's wrong with it. So most people that are producing birds for market want a clean white skin, which will tell you why I've made my choice that I have for dual purpose here at the end. The next though is the eggs. So the other product that you can have from ducks is eggs. Yes, you have other things like manure and feathers and all. But your two primary outputs, especially for market, would be eggs. The hybrid layers outproduce everything else at such a level that there is no the closest would be khaki camel but the hybrid layers uh the golden hybrid layers golden 300 hybrid layers and white 300 hybrid layers from Metzer Farms and also available for some other producers outproduce on eggs everything else and they do seem to be calmer than khakis and i have a khaki and i have a hybrid and even though they said they're the sum of their parts The khaki's a little more freaky, like, I don't want to be here. Like, even when they're, like, in their whole keep your personal distance bro mode, right, the khakis are, like, way at the back, and the hybrid layers are up in the front. And with a farmstead where we have customers coming that want to look around, they bring their kids, they want to see everything, the kids want to see the ducks, having ducks that are a little calmer works well for us, and then they outproduce the khakis. They lay a larger egg as well. So it gives a better product for market, and they they don't produce a lot more eggs a year, but the 300 is, you expect about 300 eggs a year. So I just find them to be the best, and that's what we're that's what we're adding to our flock. Right now we have 50, uh, 50 on order, 25 goldens, 25 whites. Dorothy likes, my wife likes white ducks, and we just want to kind of see how they act, if there's any real difference. But Metzer uh, Farms says there's not really much difference. They pretty much bred the white ones because some people wanted a white one. Now, here's the thing on these hybrid layers from Metzer Farms. Because they're an egg duck, they have a lot of drakes. They have a lot of drakes they really don't need or want, and a lot of customers don't really need or want them. So they have a deal for large producers. If you order 60 hybrid layers, they will give you 60 drakes for free. For free. But they caution that it's very hard to raise them for meat at, at a profit. But for a, a farmstead, that might be a great way to put a lot of meat up 
really, really cheap, especially if you have a pond and what have you. So you might want to check out Metzer Farms, M-E-T-Z-E-R, Metzer Farms. Uh, and I will have links in the show notes. Those of you on YouTube, go to the survivalpodcast.com, and there's tons of resources with all my episodes. So you can go there to get the, uh, the links for it. So um, that's the best bird I can give you for the egg production. Now, that's why they came up with a white one, too, because now you've got a good, clean carcass if you didn't want to produce it for meat. The next one is what I call, if you wanted a self-propagating dual-purpose duck. If you wanted a duck, you had some ponds, a pond or ponds, you had a pretty big piece of land, you wanted some ducks, you could buy some drakes, some females, stick them on the pond, and go out once a year and harvest a select amount of your young birds, and during the year you wanted to be able to harvest some eggs, and you didn't want to do squat, what would I recommend? I would recommend Muscovy Ducks, which is kind of an oddball that we'll talk a little bit about some of the unique characteristics as we go through today, uh, but I would recommend Muscovies. Uh, they are incredible mothers. They take really good care of their, their kids. Um, they don't require any supervision. Uh, they go broody like that. If you're in the, if you're in the northern states, they'll probably go broody once a year for you. If you're in southern states, they might raise two or three or in some rare cases even four broods a year. More than you probably want. Um, that the, the males are, almost goose-like in some of their behavior with defending females. Their females plus nesting females, they hiss, they don't quack, they're quiet. Um, and the meat is sublime. It is not like poultry, it is like delicate beef. It is beautiful. It is like a steak with a duck skin. I've heard that they're hard to clean. I've only cleaned a few, I've not found them any harder to clean than any other duck. Um, I think if you let drakes get really, really big and old, they might be a little bit tougher to clean. But dual purpose, self-propagating, leave it alone, set it and forget it. I can't find anything that competes with Muscovies. And again, when I was a kid in Florida, almost every comp apartment complex that had ponds in it, and lots of them did, had Muscovies floating around on there. And every year, there's little peeping Muscovies everywhere. And what kept the population in check? Turtles. If you have a pond and you want your ducks to propagate and grow in population, and you have a lot of turtles in that pond, either start trapping or 22 plinking turtles. Because most turtles about, you know, four inches or bigger, and that little duck swimming around, they just come up, grab them by the leg, take them underneath them. So the number one enemy on ponds that I've found, and I mean, herons will eat them, all kinds of things eat baby ducks. But turtles, I've seen kids feeding ducks, like at a park or something, and the baby ducks are following mom around, And the kids are throwing bread in the water, and you just hear, bloop, bloop. And you hear that four or five times, and half the baby ducks are gone. You don't even want the little kids to see it, you know. Because they're like, what's going on? No, don't worry about it. Let's go over here, Johnny, and plant the swings or whatever. So if you have a pond with lots of uh, uh, turtles in it, you're going to have issues with your ducks self-propagating. And you may need to protect them to a certain size before you let them out. Uh, dual purpose, just flat out, you know, regular ducks for dual purpose. The buff, the buff duck, um, it has a similar growth pattern to things like the Welsh Harlequin, the Silver Apple Yard, Apple Yard, uh, the Swedish, the Cayuga, etc. But it's a light tan and white bird, so it makes a nice, pretty carcass. So you get a, a bird that doesn't lay anywhere near as much as a hybrid layer, but lays 200-ish eggs a year. 
and makes a good, clean-looking carcass and gets up to size reasonably fast. So if you wanted a homestead duck and you wanted one breed and you want it to be dual-purpose and you wanted to routinely be harvesting drakes, hatching your own eggs, uh, producing meat and eggs, I would consider strongly... Uh, looking at the buff. I'm not saying it would be the only thing I would use, but it would be the best thing I can find. Um, let's talk about the duck eggs and, and why I love duck eggs and why uh, we found customers love duck eggs. First of all, the best thing I've found so far in my research with ducks and my experience with ducks is how long they produce compared to a chicken. Birds go through what's called a molting cycle. And they usually hit their first molt at about 18 months of age. So they grow to maturity in about six months. With ducks, it's more around 20 weeks, a little bit faster. And then they start laying eggs. And they lay eggs, and they lay eggs, and they lay eggs, and they do their thing. And they go through their season. And maybe they mother some chicks, maybe they don't. Depends on what kind of breed they are, whether they're broody, whatever. And they get around to that year and a half, that one and a half year birthday. And then... Birds, being closely related to reptiles, one of the traits that they share is basically shedding of skin. Except ducks, instead of shedding their skin, they shed their feathers. So they go in a cycle where they blow out all their feathers and they regrow feathers. This takes a lot of energy. And when that molt is going on, they, they'll start laying less, 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 and then toward the, the peak of the molt, they won't lay at all for a little while, and then they'll come back around. And this will take... Four weeks to six weeks for the total process to go through, assuming it goes right. And sometimes birds get sick, hurt, damaged, injured during the molting process. This is not an easy thing for them to go through. And then they start laying again. With a chicken, you get a huge productivity in that first year. You get, for a homesteader, a decent productivity in that second year. The third year with a chicken, you have an expensive pet. It is time for it to go to the stew pot, period. And really... One cycle, that's it. You're, you're better off bringing in new birds and having them stage six months apart so that each time you're calling, you have a new group coming into lane. Ducks will do a great first cycle, a really good second cycle, a damn good third cycle, and in their fourth cycle will be about as good of a layer for what they are, okay, based on how many eggs that particular breed lays a year and the percentage left that they're laying as a chicken in its second year. You can get four seasons, three good ones from a duck, one good one from a chicken. Part of this is because a duck, a baby female, which has got a duck and a drake, so they're not really all ducks, you got ducks and drakes. A baby duck, is female duck, is born with all of the eggs she will ever produce, already inside her in little tiny cells, ovums. And they're born with 1,500 of them. A chicken is born with about 1,000 of them. So they have 50% more to start with. And that's part of why they have more longevity. And then they generally do space their laying out a little bit you know, less concentrated. So they lay longer. Um, as far as nutrition... Duck eggs, in, and this is in general, because every animal that produces an egg is going to vary the quality of its egg based on how healthy it is, how well fed it is, how well watered it is, what it eats, etc. But in general, you know, egg for egg, there is six times more vitamin D in a duck egg. Two times the vitamin A in a duck egg compared to chickens. 
There's two times the cholesterol in duck eggs versus chicken eggs. Now, some people freak out about this. I personally don't have a problem with dietary cholesterol. I personally don't believe that, that science has ever proven a link between dietary cholesterol and blood serum cholesterol. And I believe that animal sources of cholesterol are good for us. You can believe whatever you want, but I don't even consider that a detriment. I actually consider that advantage, especially as someone that lives a paleo lifestyle and is more concerned about high-quality protein and fat than I am about keeping the fat down. Uh, they do have more protein. Uh, they have a higher fat and energy content per ounce. So it's not just that the egg's bigger, so there's more there, but they are more nutrient-dense. Uh, they have these thick, viscous, golden, gorgeous yolks that a, a chicken egg simply cannot compete with, especially if you like eggs either over easy, over medium, uh, to even over like like a soft done, right? So like, uh, you know, it's cooked through, but yet it's still a little soft. Uh, if you cook them hard, I don't see much difference, but anywhere in those ranges... And, you know, I don't eat much bread being paleo, but occasionally we'll take like a slice of sourdough and toast it in a pan with butter and then put a couple over medium duck eggs on top of that and let that yolk coat that bread. Oh, my God. You'll never want a chicken egg again. They're, they're that fantastic. They're better for baking. Higher protein, higher fat, higher certain enzymes make them cause bread to rise better, cakes to be richer, meringues to be more stable. I don't do baking because I don't eat a lot of carbohydrate, but if you do, they're better for that. They're well known for that. And you're less likely to accidentally break a yolk. Like, when I try to do over-easy eggs, every once in a while I you know, try to put the egg in the pan and break a yolk, or I crack the egg and put it in a bowl, and the yolk breaks. I've never broken a duck egg yolk. Uh, they're just firmer, and uh, the eggshells are much thicker. I'd say at least twice as thick, so when you're handling them, you're less likely to, to damage them, and they're less likely to get damaged when they're being laid. So I just, all around, everything about them is better. Uh, unless you're a person that thinks high dietary cholesterol is bad because the government said so, I can't find a single negative. Now, I'll tell you where some come from. One, because of the higher fat protein content, You should cook them a little bit slower, a little bit gentler, and be done a little bit sooner anyway. So if you cook an egg, like a chicken egg, on like a high temperature, over easy, over medium, or basted with grease or whatever, you can get kind of a high temperature, drop that egg in there, it cooks really fast, crisps up the edge, baste it or, or what have you, or turn it one time real quick and take it out, and it's nice. You do that with a duck egg, it gets kind of tough. Turn the temperature down a little bit. Take a little longer to get done with it. Give it a little bit more time so that it doesn't get rubbery. It's not that the egg is rubbery. It's that the cooking is different. And it's not much different. And if you cooked a chicken egg wrong, it would come out crappy too. The other thing is ducks that live like in a swamp and are fed no supplemental feed and eat a lot of things like slugs and stuff, some of that flavor is going to end up in the egg. So I would say even if you have that self-sufficient environment for your ducks, give them a, a good portion of supplemental feed if you want their eggs to be top quality. We feed, Texas Naturals feed, it is a uh, peanut-based meal uh, feed. It contains no soy and no GMO products at all. The ducks love it, and their eggs are fantastic. Every customer we have that buys our duck eggs calls us right away, when can I get more? 
And right now the answer is first come, first serve. We don't have enough. I'm not eating. I'm, I'm taking the big double yolks for myself. I get about one or two of those a week, and those are so I can have some duck eggs for myself. Right now I'm living on chicken eggs uh, because I, I'm saving the duck eggs to keep my customers happy. Uh, so that should tell you what I think about them. Let's talk about hatching them and and how you know we, we do that. Let's talk about, uh, actually, let's go with the basics of raising and managing them first. I've had a lot of questions about um, how much space do they need? How much area do they need? And um, I've talked about that with chickens before, and experts say it's basically the same. Now, those numbers compare, uh, uh, you know, according to the experts are as follows. Basically, in your coop, Uh, each bird needs about four square feet. So in your 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 house, because I consider a duck uh, dwelling more a house than a coop. I don't know why. I just feel that way. You need four square feet. So if you had ten ducks, uh, by the numbers, you, you would require 40 square feet of floor space. Um, and then in your yard, you would need 10 square feet of floor space for your your ducks. So if you had four, you know, ten uh, ducks. Uh, you'd need a hundred square feet minimum for them to mill around and operate in. If you're practicing more of a free range uh, mentality, I think things change a lot. So, uh, I have an eight by eight, um, house for my ducks that they can go inside of. And then I have the caged area around that. Now that's, uh, 64 square feet. So if you do that math, uh, You know, you're looking at uh, 16 ducks, right? Uh, and I've got more than that right now. And no one has a problem, and it's not always fouled up or messed up, and no one's got conflicts or, or whatever. Why not? They don't They don't live in there. Like, they go in there when they feel like it, and they don't all seem to want to go in there at the same time. In fact, about the only time they really spend much time in there is if it's raining, And it's not because they don't like the rain. It's because we don't like to pay for extra food. So we put their feeder in there when it rains to keep their feed dry so it doesn't get ruined. And they go in there to eat, and then they come out and play in the rain. Uh, so I think that you're more along the lines with ducks. Unless you're doing a, a coop-and-run model, which I don't really recommend with ducks. I think if you have to do coop-and-run, maybe ducks isn't for you. So if you're doing what we're doing, which is more a home base and a free range, which is way easier with ducks than chickens, again, because they don't mess stuff up, then I think what you're looking at is you want about four square feet in that area with shelter that can be used as needed for that space. And I don't know that you need any more than that. Now, if you are doing the coop model with ducks, where they're actually in a coop, I think you actually need more floor space with ducks than chickens, in my personal opinion, because ducks don't perch. So the thing about chickens is you can say you need all this floor space in a coop, but if they're coming out every morning and only going in at night, that coop doesn't need much room at all because you need about one foot of perch per chicken so that everybody can sort themselves out. And trust me, guys, that's more for moving around. Because I go in my coop at night, and I've got plenty of empty perches, and i got chickens in clumps. And they're as close to each other as they get all huddled together. So they're not using floor space very much at all uh, at night, the chickens are. Where the ducks, since they don't perch, are. The exception would be muscovies, which, again, they are their own thing. Um, the next thing is your fencing. 
again, I think fencing of two and a half to three foot tall, with the exception of Muscovy ducks, is sufficient in my, my experience. They don't even want to get over. They don't care. They sit there and run back and forth, and again, they do all their little head-bobbing, tail-wagging, jerky motions waiting for you to open it. It's almost like it's a celebration. It's like, he's coming, he's going to open it. You know, they're just so happy to see you, and it's almost like they like that feeling, like, okay, we're here now, and then he's going to come at 8 o'clock and let us out. It's 8.05, where's he at? Okay, 8.10, here he is. Uh, he must have had an extra cup of coffee today before he came out for us, but here he is, and they go off and do their thing. And that low fencing is all you need. And that makes things like cattle panels great for it. Now, our solution to cattle panels, because they have these big gaps in them, right, that the ducks can and will get through, is we just take chicken wire and we lay the cattle panel on the ground and we take inexpensive chicken wire, but we do use the, uh, the stuff that's got like a, uh, like a vinyl paint coating on it because it lasts longer, and we just roll it out along the cattle panel and we zip tie it with black UV-stabilized zip ties to the cattle panel. And they can be freestanding, 16 by 16 square. We brood young ducks in those a lot until they're ready to go be with the flock. It's it's easy, it's simple, it's movable. Uh, they're not that expensive. They last for damn near ever. And uh, if the zip ties start to wear out, you put a few new zip ties on them. And that's all we have our birds in our area with right now. Two to three foot high fencing, and that fencing, I believe, is three foot. I can, on my tiptoe, just step over it without catching the crotch. And I'm not a real tall guy. I'm like 5'11". So that gives you an idea about how tall it is. I actually keep two center blocks there to make it easy for Dorothy to step over it. And I generally use them myself because you never know when you're going to step down on what looks like nice draw straw. If we keep dry straw in their area for them to keep things clean, and you go to step on that dry straw and they've mudded up underneath it and your foot slips, and then you are catching if you catch my drift. So I usually use the, the center blocks to step over as well. Um, now, again, Muscovies, and this is my experience with Muscovies so far. The Muscovies have been really cool, but they were raised by people who kept them in basically 10 by 10 dog kennel style cages at night and let them run a backyard. They didn't have a very big piece of land, a backyard like a little bit bigger than a suburban backyard. And they were heavily fed, heavily mothered by a human, things like that. So they, and with lots of other Muscovy ducks and geese uh, and some silky chickens. So they were very much a tame Muscovy. So that your your mileage may vary with whatever you have. When I brought them home, they were upset, obviously. You're, you're happy. You're doing your thing. You're in your kennel like you are every night, and some stranger comes in, grabs you, sticks you in a dog kennel, drives you 15 miles through a cold night, and you get to his place. So they're already upset. So it's a perfect time to cut their wings. We clip their, their primary flight feathers on one side, and we put them in the house, and we close the door for the night to home them to that. Like, this is your new home. The next day we opened the door, they came out. Uh, about an hour and a half later, they finally came out into the area with the gate open. It took them two days to be willing to leave the area. We did not force them out. We did not push them. I put a pool in there with them, even though I usually don't keep a pool in the area because it makes it more muddy, more nasty, more disgusting. I keep They can wait till morning to get in their pools. We put a couple little dishes in there with them with water so they have some water overnight. Um, but we, we gave them that for a couple days. Now they're roaming around. I have not witnessed them tried to fly. I don't know how effective the wing clipping is. The drakes can't go anywhere. Um, but I've seen Muscovy ducks fly 50 yards through the air just and, and take off. 
They are basically a wild duck that has been domesticated in behavior. They've not changed. If you found a wild Muscovy, might be colored a little bit differently. Size, shape, and behavior is almost the same. Just more afraid of people. They're from Latin and Central America, Central and South America. So they're different than every other domestic breed, but they do have some great things going for them. Again, quiet, meat, and very, very self-sufficient. So you, you got to almost have to look at them as a different thing, although 90% of the same stuff applies. Consider them a normal duck that doesn't quack uh, and can fly. Uh, again, my... My main ducks, my, my domestic breeds, all those different ones I talked about, these damn things can't fly at all. They Every morning when I open up the coop, they go running out and they just flap their wings. And they make a lot of noise like they're flying. If they get two inches of, of air, they're lucky. If they can get two inches of air for two feet, they're very lucky. Every once in a while I see one jump. And it might get a foot, but it's like a foot up and straight down. They just do not have any ability to carry themselves at all which is really, really nice for your housing and management. Um, I do not use laying boxes. So I don't have, uh, like like in my chicken coop, I have these boxes that I built out of basically they're plastic filing uh, type boxes that stack on top of each other. And we put them all across basically a plywood bench and put one piece of plywood over it and they can go in there and they work great. The ducks don't give a damn. When we figured out they started laying was when they just decided it was time to start laying. We didn't know when they would. We weren't that concerned about it when we first got them. You go out one day and there's eggs laying all over their area. So we do have a few that tend to lay in the duck house, but most of them just lay randomly. So this can make things a challenge, but they're a creature of habit. So every night they go back to their area, we close them in the gate. We wait till 7.30, 8, 8.30 to let them out now that they're laying. Uh, so we're changing the routine slowly. I'm making it later and later without upsetting them. Because I'm telling you, they get on a clock, like a circadian rhythm, and they know it's time for us to be out. The reason I'm pushing it to about 8.30 isn't so I can lay in bed longer, because I'm up long before that. It's because by 7.30, they're generally done laying. But they'll still pop a couple eggs out. Sometimes the hens come back to the area to lay them back here in the house or in the field. But sometimes they just go under a bush or... Sometimes they're just, I've never seen birds like a duck with egg laying. Chicken gets all upset, prances around, has to sit down, buck, 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 does the egg song. Sometimes a duck will just be walking and poop, out goes an egg. I mean, just bloop. And that, like turns around, like, oh, I lay an egg, just goes on about its life. So sometimes we find eggs around the property. By holding them to 8.30, we expect we'll get 90 to 95% of the eggs laid in the area where they can be found. The big thing we've started to do is really deep straw mulch for their whole area so that the eggs don't get muddy. So that's the big thing is trying to keep the eggs clean. If we can, you know, if we can get them to lay in the, in the coop or the house, fine. But for right now, what we're doing works. Go out every morning, let the ducks out, pick the eggs up in the house. That's simple. So that's kind of, you know, our day-to-day -day management of the ducks. And again, um, I want to remind you that when you read about personality, nervousness, etc., if you have a flock, the flock amalgamates. The other thing is water. Clean water is very, very important to them, uh, except don't try to keep it clean all the time because you're not going to. Uh, if you have a pond, great. If you have multiple ponds, awesome. You have no work to do at all. They'll use the ponds. 
If you don't, and many of us don't, uh, and if you have land like mine where putting them in is not really practical, kiddie pools. And I found the best kiddie pools are not the big giant kiddie pools and not the itty bitty kiddie pools, like the mini sized ones that sell for a, about nine bucks in the front of like a Walmart store all summer long. These are probably holding 25 to 30 gallons of water completely full. And because of that, they're really easy for a grown human being. Even my wife can do it. Reach down, pick up one side, pull it up, and it bends enough that the water starts coming out. And once you get a few gallons out and it lightens up, you can just dump it. And it doesn't take that long to fill. And you can move them around very easily. We Every day, and in the winter, we can do it every other day because they don't nasty up quite as fast. Every day, every other day, we go out, dump the water, rinse them out, move them to another location, fill them up. This prevents the ducks from turning an area into a complete mud swamp just by moving it around. It also controls their behavior. It moves them from place to place. So if you have a bunch of fruit trees, you know, put two or three kiddie pools near two or three of those trees, let the ducks spend a day there, dump it, move it to two or three other trees, fill it, Next day, dump it, and you're spreading the fertility around. You're spreading the duck's behavior around. They relate to their water. This is the easiest way I've found to deal with it if you don't have a pond. Again, if you have a pond, you don't have to worry about it. Now, I'm looking into ways to keep more water for longer in their area for them. And what I've come up with is building any type of a waterer that will let a head go in but not a butt or a body. And what I think I'm going to do is go with basically a piece of 4-inch PVC wired to the fence with a float valve inside of it so it acts like a gutter and take a, a basically a, a hole saw, like you core a hole for a doorknob with on a drill and core some holes into that that are big enough that a duck can easily stick his head in there and get his head in the water but yet can't climb into it. Because we put these little dish pans out there, like big dog water bowls, basically. Two of those every night for them, so they have some water. And every morning, they're completely icky at the bottom and drained out and gone. Because they get in them and they, they duck around, right? So that's kind of the next step. And I have some other ideas for water for brooding that I'll talk about. Because next we're going to talk about going into hatching and brooding. Um, let's talk about homesteaders, modern survivalists, etc., preppers... Always want to be, I want to be self-sufficient. I want to be self-sufficient. I want to do everything myself. I think there's a place for that, but I also think that, you know, you probably drive a car. I'm just saying. You're probably watching this on YouTube or listening to it on, on a podcast on iTunes or something like that, and you probably didn't make your own computer, especially you didn't wire your own circuit boards and all. So there's certain things that it makes sense that in our lifestyles we allow other people to do. Okay, not even we don't know how to do them sometimes. Like, I can change my own oil. I was a mechanic in the Army. I worked on great big diesel trucks. Everything from changing the oil to ripping motors and engines apart, rebuilding them and putting them back in. But I don't change my own oil now because I have better things to do with my time to change my own oil. If I need to do it, I know how. I even have the stuff I need to do it. But it's so cheap for me to drop the car off, go about my business, come back and pick it up, that it makes sense to let somebody else change my oil. Now, that's how I feel about brooding or, or, or uh, hatching ducklings. You can do it. It's a great skill to have. It's easy to do. It might save you a little money. It won't save you any time at all, 
But it's cool, and you can start working with your own breeds and stuff like that. So I want to tell you how to do it, but I'm telling you as someone that's in business now, producing duck eggs for customers, the easiest thing for me to do is let a professional establishment like Metzer Farms breed a perfect bird for my needs and order that bird and have it show up at the post office and then just have to brood it. It saves me a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of concern. So I'm giving you the information, but I'm also cautioning you that it may not be best unless you can do the number one way for brooding, brooding uh, ducks and hatching ducks. Let mom do it. If you get a broody duck who wants to sit on eggs and you want more ducks, cram as many eggs under her hairy little butt, or I should say her, her uh, feathery little butt, as you can fit. You can take them from other ducks and put them under there and let her do her job. She will maintain those eggs. She will check them every day. She will turn them every day. She will do everything she's supposed to do. And if an egg goes bad, she'll know it. She'll throw it out of the nest. If you ever come by a, a nesting duck, a brooding duck, and there's an egg shoved off to the side, just take that egg and throw it away. It's either dead or stinking. It's wrong. And she knows it. Don't ask me exactly how she does, but she knows. She's a duck. It's her deal. That's why I like muscovies for self-sufficiency. Because they'll do it. They'll do it. And there's almost no such thing as a female muscovy that won't, at least once a year, sit a brood. Maybe their first year when they're young, they might not. But once they're, once they're, you know, one season in, you know, it depends on when they hatched, how old they are when they come into that, that breeding cycle. But if they're a mature bird, they're going to sit. Um, and you can get some other birds. Rowans sometimes will sit for you. Khaki Campbells are terrible. The better they are as an egg production bird, in general, the, the worse they are as a brooder. So if you can, even with a mixed flock or whatever, just find one bird that will go broody once a season, that can probably hatch enough for farmstead use or homestead use. And that's the best way. Let's assume you can't and you want to do it yourself. It's exactly like incubating chickens. It just takes longer. I recommend you get a good incubator. I use the Incuview. It's almost a $200 incubator. It's 100% programmable. It does everything for you. It works great. I've had good results with it. Um, we have not yet incubated ducks, but I, I gave some duck eggs to a friend and, and to another couple. And one friend, I gave my Incuview incubator on loan until he gets done with them. And then the friends, they, got, they went and bought one. Both got about 30% hatch rates. Comparing that to chickens, the last run of chickens I hatched, I did 32 eggs, and I got 31 chicks. So it was nowhere near as good. Here's the thing. The ducks had just started to lay, so they were younger. Probably less fertility in general. It was very cold and rainy and nasty, and they lay the eggs outside. So those eggs are getting wet, and they're having the, the, the blem, which is the protective covering, rinsed off of them by the cold. There was wide swings in temperature during this particular time. It was just when uh, these people were all here at the same time for an event at my house. So we did what we could then. But they got a 30% hatch rate. I think if you harvest eggs during peak of breeding, got lots of breeding going on, got mature birds, got happy drakes, you can do much better than that, probably 90%. Uh, but you may not end up with that. The thing is, since it's free, because you're just taking the eggs you would eat or sell, it, it doesn't really matter. Just incubate more than you think you need. Um, so that's the basics of it. Um, you can store your eggs, just like any other poultry, for about 10 days at room temperature without them losing viability. 
it is a good idea to turn your eggs at least once a day, even during that stage, so that you don't get yolks sticking to the side of the shell. There was a lot going on during this time I gave these eggs away, and they may not have gotten turned enough. I have a very simple way we've come up with turning eggs. We came up with this from chickens. We have a customer that wants to buy fertile chicken eggs, and he buys every egg beyond what we can sell of our chickens right now for incubation. What we do is we put them in egg cartons, and then we turn the carton on its side. And then every day you just flip the carton over, like that. And if you want to do it twice a day, flip it. Middle of the day, flip it back. It can be partially full. It can be all the way full. The carton will stand right on its side because you really shouldn't store an egg. You're going to incubate long way or uh, end to end. You want it, you know, on it, the way it'll sit in a in a, a coop. So you can store your eggs like on a counter or something somewhere where you'll see them and you remember to do it. Put them in a like a used egg carton or something like that. Flip them each day. It's better to do that than to not do that. Put them all in the incubator at the same time. This way they're going to all hatch about the same time because there's some important things you have to do toward the end of the cycle uh, that it's really bad if you've got them spread out a week in hatching in the same incubator. It's hard to do, especially with an automatic incubator. So that's how you store up your eggs and get them ready to go. With normal ducks, not muscovies, the only difference is they take longer. Chickens generally hatch in 21 days. Ducks generally take 28 days. You want to set your incubator to 99.5 degrees for days 1 through 25 and turn roughly 7 times a day. You can turn too little, you're probably not going to turn too much. Because your incubator, if it's automatic, ain't going to have a setting to turn too frequently. You ain't going to be able to turn it in every 5 seconds. They don't work that way. But the optimum uh, from breeders that I've spoken to and research I've done, day 1 through 25, set the incubator 99.5 with 7 turns a day. Day 26 to 28, uh, you want to drop the temperature by one degree to 98.5 degrees. And then you do not turn it for those last couple days. And the reason you don't turn it those last couple days is that little duck is in that egg. And he's getting ready to come out or she's getting ready to come out. And it will maneuver itself into a position where it can get leverage and start using that egg tooth to start picking away and pushing away. And it wants to be kind of like in this on-its-back position. And if after it's turned and starting to work on getting out of the egg, you turn the egg, well, you've just ruined all its work. And now it's trying to crack the egg, and it's 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 disoriented. It's hard for it to turn at the point. It's it's not floating anymore like it was when it was just an embryo. It's, it's still maybe sticking to the lining of the egg. So those last few days, those last three days of a hatch cycle, you don't want to move the eggs at all anymore. You want to leave them oriented the way they are and stop. You also want to jack up your humidity. I have a resource for you in the show notes where you can see exactly where to set your humidity. But basically, I just add more water to the incubator in the last few days than I do during the rest of the cycle. I look at, there's a little humidifier right on uh, the IncuView incubator that I use, and you just keep it in a range where it says, there's a range where it says incubation period, And you just keep enough water in there so it stays in that level. And then there's a thing where it says hatching period. And you just keep enough water in it where it stays there during the hatching period. And that's so the, egg, the bird doesn't dry out and it doesn't stick. Shells don't stick. Egg lining doesn't stick to it. And it's real simple. You can see why I like the Inky View and why I'm willing to pay more for it because it makes it that simple. Um, that's it. Now, what do we do with Muscovies? Because they're different. Uh, they take 35 days to hatch instead of 28 days to hatch. 
Day 1 through 33, 99.5, turn 7 times a day. Day 33 through 35, 98.5, don't turn the eggs no more. All you do is adjust to their, their, their hatching cycle. This is why you don't want to do things like try to hatch goose eggs and chicken eggs in the same incubator at the same time, right? Or duck eggs and chicken eggs in the same, they have different cycles. So if you want to do different birds, you either have to marry up their cycles, which you can do, or you need to separate them into different groups or you need two incubators. Now how could you marry up their cycles? Just hold back your chicken days, your chicken eggs. Leave space for them. And then you could conceivably hatch chickens and ducks on the, about the same, same cycle. So you just, you know, wait an extra seven days. So you got 21 and 28 right there. Seven days into the incubation of the ducks, you could add the chicken eggs and stop the turning at the same time. And you could do that. And it could work. You probably have enough work to do with your ducks or your chickens to not need to be doing both at the same time. Just saying. All right. So that's, that's the whole of incubation. Now, brooding the young ducks. Once they're 50%, 60% grown, they're like a little Mack truck. You got to kill them if, you, if they're going to die. Or they got to get sick from something really bad if you're going to die. Or like a hawk has to eat them, or a, a raccoon has to catch them, or like a building has to fall on them to kill them. One or little bitty, they can die pretty easy. Especially in your care versus mom's care, because mom knows what she's doing, And the reality is we think we do, but we don't. We don't think like a duck. We don't have feathers like a duck. We don't have the instincts of a duck. We don't know what it is to be a duck. So we do the best we can with brooding, and we're stepping in for mom. Mom provides clean, warm, dry environment for that baby duck. Even if it gets in the water more than we think it should, she knows when to get it away from the water. She knows how to keep it warm, how to keep it dry, how to keep bad things away from it, how to protect it. And it instinctively does what she wants it to do. It knows that's mom. I'm going to do what mom wants. It doesn't know your mom. You can make them imprint to a bit where they think you're sort of kind of mom, but it'll never be the same. So all we can do is the best we can do. And that means some of your ducks that you brood will probably die. It is okay. That is, and, and, and if the mom will lose some, and they usually do, um, I can't think of a better mother than a goose. I really can't. And we lost uh, one of our goslings. Uh, the mom goose, lost, she had four that made it, and uh, we ended up with three at the end. So if she can lose one, you just have to be accepted you know, with it. That's just how nature works. You might lose one too. All right, so expect to lose some. Brooding time. How long do they need to stay in a brooder before they can kind of go out and be much less work? That's why you want them out. They're less work when they're out. Two... To five weeks. That's that's my opinion. Really three if you listen to people that know more than me. And it, it really depends on the season. Right now, I have birds coming in. They're going to get here around January 14th. It's going to be very cold, even for a duck, especially for a little baby fuzzy duck. They're going to be at like a month, full-on month of brooding work till they start to really put feathers out before they can spend the night outside, even with supplemental heat outside. And that's going to be more work because they're all crowded into a brooder, making a big stink mess out of everything. They need a lot more maintenance. If you had them in the beautiful, perfect part of the spring, which trust me, as I expand my flock in the future, and I'm not behind on eggs to my customers, and I just know I'm going to need more ducks next year, I would plan to have these birds hitting ground here in like mid-March to late March. 
So by April, when they're ready to go out of the brooder, two weeks later, it's beautiful outside. Ain't too hot, ain't too cold, duck heaven. The reason I went ahead and did it in the winter is because 20 weeks to eggs, and I got people going, I want eggs, I want eggs, I want eggs. So we're trying to build a market, and we're trying to get to market as quickly as we can. So we're, we're going with winter. So that means four to five weeks of these things in stock tanks and however I decide to brood them. And I would say at two weeks... On a nice sunny day, like today, it's 50 degrees, even though it's going to be 14 degrees, 18 degrees tomorrow night. But a day like today in the 50s, a two-week-old duckling could go out like a tractor for the day, and then you have to physically put them back in the brooder at night. And I think it's a good way to acclimate them to temperature changes. And you can always take your tractor, run an extension cord out there, and put a heat light over the top of your tractor so there's always a spot where they can go get warm. And you always want a spot where they can go be dry. Because when they're fuzzy, they can go in water. If you see baby, this stuff where people are afraid of that duck getting wet is stupid, stupid, stupid. I see baby ducks all the time come right out of the nest with their mom straight down. Wild ducks. Okay? They're not that much different. But if they stay wet and they can't get dry, they'll freeze to death. Even in relatively warm temperatures. So you got to give them a place where they can be dry and get out of wetness and where they can be warm. And if you give them that, they're okay. Um, in the brooder itself, you want to provide heat on one end of the brooder, and a stock tank, a stainless steel stock tank, makes a great brooder. Set it up, put everything in it I'm going to tell you about, and it works awesome. If you're going to brood them in a barn or something like that, you need to, because we learned this the hard way with chickens, you need to build a frame out of wood and cover it with a thick, Hardware cloth. I'm not talking screen like a screen door. I mean like that quarter inch, heavy duty, like cheese, like you could take a potato on it and grate a potato with it. Hardware cloth. Because what, if you have any rats, especially when they're little, the screen stuff, they will bore a hole in it, they will go in there and they will kill all your baby birds. And you, not, you might think, we don't have any rats. If you live in the country and you have a barn, you have rats. Uh, you just do. And uh, a good mouse or cat or something like that can keep them down, but they're there. Uh, so usually you can close up a garage, close up a barn. You don't worry about raccoons or skunks or possums getting in there. But a rat can get through a hole you wouldn't believe a rat can fit through. And they will kill your babies. We lost, of 30 chickens, we lost 29 to a rat in one attack. And we know it was a rat. And uh, that rat is still yet to be destroyed. He's a very... Smart rat, and I've got some ideas about how to get rid of him, but just make sure you protect your babies is all I'm saying. Um, but you want your heat on one end of the brooder, and you adjust how far that heat light is from that end of the brooder. And if you go and look in your brooder when all your little ducks are like down for a nap, and they're kind of making like a halo, they're, they're right around the edge of that light. There's space in the dead center of it, and everybody's happy and asleep. You've probably got it about perfect. If they are all huddled in the center, and there's ones at the end trying to get further in, they're cold. If they never sleep near the heat and they're far away from it, it's probably too close. Probably need to back it up a little bit. And there's all kinds of temperature measurements you can do and everything, but in the end, you just watch the animal's behavior. I've worked with reptiles my whole life, snakes, lizards, and things like that. And people go over and over and over about how to set up a vivarian, right? Your cage for your snake. You look at the animal. If the animal behaves the way you would expect, the environment's right. If the animal behaves in a weird way, it's thermoregulating because you haven't given it an environment that, that makes it 
easy for it to thermoregulate. So that's what you're looking for is that kind of donut shape to them. And don't be too worried about this. If everybody seems asleep and happy, even though they're clumped together, maybe you just have a lot of ducks for your size of brooder. Okay? So that's that. They have to have food and water at all times. What we started doing with ours when we were brooding them is we would give them water all day long. And we tried to keep them out of the brooder during the day, out in a, a duck tractor, chicken tractor, goose tractor, whatever you want to call it. And at night, we would put them, we would give them a bunch of water before they would go in. And then we'd put them in and take their water away for the night. It worked. It's not the best practice, but it worked. And it, it, it stopped us coming in and find, finding cold, dead, wet baby ducks. Because that's part of why we lost some of the first group. They would get all soaking wet. They would get pushed out of the heat lamp. And they would die. And uh, we think they have a disease, too, that we call, call tractor supply disease, by the way. Because the first group was birds we bought at tractor supply, not birds we ordered. Um, but it, that was a problem. I've come up with a solution researching a lot of things that people have done. And what I'm going to do is in my stock tank this year, and we get these birds in a couple of days, I'm going to take a piece of one by three, and I'm going to cut it to the width of the, tra of the stock tank. And I'm going to put it in the stock tank. And yes, I'm going to ruin my stock tank, but this, this one's pretty not long for this world anyway. And I'm going to screw it so it's stationary. I'm going to put all my bedding back to the main, to the, to the large side of the stock tank. Over on this side, I'm going to put a, a small pan down in that small space. And then I'm going to set basically a hardware piece of hardware cloth over top of that. And I'm going to put the water on top of the hardware cloth. And then that way, you can fill in the, the three inches of, of floor space so the ducks can just walk straight across. When they're little, they can't climb much. And they'll go over to where the water is. And they can splash around and poop around in the water. And all the water will drain through the hardware cloth down to the pan underneath. And then, in, in, you know, when you go to change the water, you pull the water out, you pick the hardware cloth up, you pull the drain pan out from underneath it, you dump it out, you put it back in, you put it all back together. And that way, you don't go in and find your brooder soaking wet and all your litter matted down with, with wet duck poop and, and duck pee, because that's what you find otherwise. That seems like the best way. It's probably best to put the food over there, because it can all fall through as well and not accumulate. But we'll see how much room there is in a 6 by 2 stock tank for 50 ducklings. But that's my plan, and I think it's a good one. And I think it's probably the best advice I can give you in the brooder with ducks. Now, the other thing is ducks need to get their heads wet. So part of why they're in there and they're doing all this stuff, they're, they're mucking around and, and splashing everything up, is because they're a duck. And you're, you know, you little fluffy jerk, what are you doing this for? Well, part of it is they have to. They have to be able to get their heads wet. So if your waterer is not deep enough for them to stick their head in and get their head wet, then you need a little dish, not big enough for them to swim around in, but a little dish over there as well that they can kind of get in and mess their face up and get their heads all wet in. And that has to be changed regularly. This is why I like to get them out of the brooder into a tractor-type situation as soon as possible. Because at that point... You can put a dish pan of water out there, a dog pan of water out there. They can make a mess out of it. You don't care. In the brooder, since all of that accumulates to nastiness, it can contribute to disease, and again, they can get cold and sick and die. So creating kind of a false floor 
where your waterer sits so that all the splash goes down and doesn't mat up all your bedding. And Aspen uh, shavings are probably your best bedding bet. So, you know, pick up a few bales of that stuff for cheap uh, at Tractor Supply or a pet store or whatever when you go to brood your ducks. And just, you know, they say daily, but if you're not letting them wet it up, then it's probably every three days you can change that if you don't have a ton of ducks. With 50 ducks, we'll have to probably change it every other day. Might it be more optimal to do it every day? Yeah, we only have so much time, and I've not observed it to be a problem. And again, I want them out of that brooder and into at least a daytime tractoring situation as soon as possible for my own personal happiness. What we found is if you put a dog kennel in an area surrounded by uh, hog panels with, with wire on them, they'll use that dog kennel at night when they're babies. They, they are more likely to go inside a structure. You fill that up with a bedding material. You don't put water in there. They go in there at night. You close it up. And they sleep in there. If it's too cold for them to sleep in there, if you can train them to that behavior, they go in there, you close it up, you go pick it up, you take it to your brooder, you open it up, you don't have to chase them around. Just saying. So, But I want them staying outside as soon as I can. I believe the survival rates actually go up if you do that. Um, then the next thing is, what about introducing them to a main flock? So with chickens, when they're half-grown, uh, or a little more, which is about the same thing I do with a duck. At night, I take the chickens into the coop, and I, I like sit them right on a perch next to another chicken. And if I have a whole flock of young birds, I actually like purposely spread them out in the pitch dark where everybody's asleep. Everybody wakes up next to each other. There's a pecking order that needs to be figured out, but in the end, it's a chicken brain. It's not very smart. The chicken looks at the other chicken like, I don't like you, but I guess you were always here. Ducks are awake at night. Uh, especially if you, even if they're asleep, if you go out there, they wake up. They're not groggy like chickens. When you introduce them, you have to deal with the fact that you're introducing them. I would not introduce young ducks to adult ducks in the flock until they're at least 60% grown. And I would kind of watch them when I did. Um, the best result I've found so far, though, was how we did the Muscovies. And my plan for this next flock is this. When they're ready to be introduced to the main ducks, we'll put them in the duck house at night. We'll close them in the duck house at night. That morning, I will go out, open up the, 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 the duck pen, let all the ducks out. When all the main ducks, all the adult ducks go out, I'll close the gate up, and then I'll open the duck house, and I'll let those babies, these young adolescents, spend a day in that area. If everything seems well, the next day I'll just let everybody out. They'll probably all relate to each other. If they seem like they're a little flighty yet, We'll round them up, we'll put them in the house one more night, two nights they'll be home, and they'll become part of the flock. We're probably going to also expand that fenced-in area, since we're going to have more ducks, to give them that you know four square feet per duck at night when they're there. But it's so easy to do, all we need is a couple more hog panels. So that's the basics of how we manage our ducks. And again, some of you guys keep harping on the whole egg thing, just keep them penned up till late 30 in the morning, and 90% of those eggs will be wherever you have them penned up. And then just when they start laying their eggs, if they're laying them in the mud or something, put a lot of bedding in that area so that the eggs stay nice and clean for you. That's the best I can do on that. Uh, remember, they have to be able to dunk their heads in water. So even if you do not provide your ducks a kiddie pool every day, and some people only do it two or three times a week, it's okay. That's fine. They have to have a place they can stick their heads in. 
And it makes sense to design a waterer that they can get their heads in but their ass not in. Or you're going to constantly be dealing with fouled water. For what it's worth, I have found that Muscovy ducks do make water nasty. It takes them about three times as long as it takes the other ducks to do it. They are not as foul-producing as the, the uh, conventional ducks. Um, and again, remember this. When you're raising young ducks, some you're going to die. Just accept it. It's just part of the way of things. Some final thoughts here. If you're going to incubate, get a good incubator. Uh, I don't make any money off Incubview. I do do discounts for people and, uh, and my members. I have reached out to the company that sells the Incubview. I've never heard back from them. I have no relationship with them. I'd love to get my members a discount to the product. Uh, if, if there was an affiliate program, I might even occasionally advertise for them and, and make some money off it or something, but I don't. I'm telling you, of all the incubators I've looked at under, you know, under $300, uh, and then going down to cheap $50 incubators, it's the best I've found. It's worked great, and everybody that's bought one has been happy with the way it's performed, and it is the best consumer level incubator I can recommend to you. If you're going beyond, you know, you know, incubating 30 eggs at a time, I think you need to look at more of a commercial style incubator, and that's a world beyond what I want to do for myself. Um, the next is, Beware of tractor supply disease. Um, I thought ducks were fragile. I really did. I thought baby ducks just died. That's what they did. When we order good quality ducks, and you can get them again from Metzer Farms is one of my go-tos, and the other uh, is EFAL, and EFAL actually does source some of their birds, breeding stock or straight source some of their birds from Metzer, from my understanding. Um, they were great. And they were like little Mack trucks, just like my buddy John Dowie calls them. So um, definitely consider getting your birds from good quality suppliers and uh, beware of tractor supply disease. I'm not saying not to buy from the local feed store or tractor supply. I'm just saying if you do and you have unusually high losses, more than one or two, it, it's probably that they had some kind of a sickness or an illness or something like that. Um, and I've heard through the grapevine, so to speak, that ducks from Tractor Supply all come from one breeding house that's had a lot of problem with losses. I don't know who that breeding house is. I don't know if that information is valid. I don't want to say anything bad about Tractor Supply. They're one of my favorite stores. But my experience was 12 ducks from Tractor Supply, 8 of them died. 25 ducks from EFAL, 1 of them died. And I managed them both the same way. So that, that, that's all I can say there. Beware of feed store tractor supply disease. Next, again, EFAL and Metzler are great places to order. And the big thing is this show, let me look real quick so I get the number right here, gone an hour and a half today on ducks. And I said I was afraid I couldn't do a whole show, but then in the end, I know me and I know I can. Do not let any of this intimidate you. Feed them, give them water, give them a place to be overnight, see to their needs, and they will work it out. Ducks are easy. I, call, I consider them much easier and more friendly and better personalities than a chicken with less health problems, less issues, less of everything bad, and more of just about everything good. If you can deal with the fact that they make a mess, they put holes in the ground with their beaks, they play in the mud, and they quack. If you can deal with those, I don't think there's a better animal for your farmstead or your homestead. I really don't. Uh, I think they're better than geese. I think that a, a duck raised to full size as a meat breed duck is not as big as a goose, but close. And 
it will lay eggs for you almost all year, where a goose will lay eggs for you a month and a half out of the year. Ducks are friendly, geese are aggressive. So they beat the goose, they beat the chicken. Uh, they're less of a problem than goats. People love goats, but you let a goat get in the wrong place, it eats everything. My ducks range right through my gardens, cause no trouble whatsoever. They range right through my forest, they cause no trouble whatsoever. Um, they occasionally might pick at some lettuce or something like that, but it's not a big deal. What they take, they give back a hundredfold. If they want a couple leaves of lettuce, but they've just killed 150 grasshoppers, man, I'll pull the lettuce out and give it to them. I'm just saying. So with that, this has been Jack Spiritual with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.